Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain and host of AI and the Future of Work. Thrilled to be here today with a fantastic guest. Before we jump in, a bit of perspective. It's Seis de Mayo, yesterday having been Cinco de Mayo. And uh, it's roughly day 52 by my count of the shelter in place in Santa Clara County, California. The global death count uh, continues to increase. There's no real way to comprehend the impact of the pandemic on human life, but we can comprehend the impact of the pandemic on work. And I'd say there's a growing sense of anticipation that a return to work is on the horizon. My, uh, my, my beloved beta breakers was supposed to be May 17th in San Francisco, but it was postponed until September 20th. A bit of a cliche, but I, I think it's also an appropriate analogy. We're, we're all runners. We're lined up at the starting chute. We're all a little anxious about the course and the weather and how the body's going to feel at mile six or seven. But we're all lining up and we're eager for that, the, the starting gun to fire. Today, we'll spend a bit of time discussing what to expect in the months and years ahead. We're lucky to have a Silicon Valley luminary with us to share his perspective. Dave Kellogg is a prolific blogger. Check him out at kellblog.com if you're not there already. He's a multiple-time venture-backed CEO. He's a SaaS metrician and an overall renaissance man. Hey, Dave, welcome to AI and the Future of Work. Why don't you start by telling our listeners how you, uh, how you got into this racket? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dan, and thanks uh, for having me. Um, I, I mean, I got into software originally as a as you know programming on paper tape in middle school um, in basic, but uh, uh, came out here, went to Berkeley, and uh, basically paid for college by programming at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And when I graduated, I started out as a tech support guy at Ingress, one of the original uh, four database companies. Um, and watching Ingress lose to Oracle got me interested in sales and marketing. So uh, I moved over to marketing. I, I later ran marketing and business objects for nine years as we grew from 30 million to a billion in revenue. Uh, and then after that, I ran two companies. I ran uh, MarkLogic, an XML database company. I ran Host Analytics, a financial planning company. Uh, in between, I did a year at Salesforce as a GM for the customer service apps. Um, and on the side, I do the blog, as you noted, and I've uh, sat on a total of five different boards. Like I said, you've seen it all. So uh, eager to get your perspective. So here we sit in uh, kind of the vortex in the middle of the pandemic. I'd like our listeners to get your perspective on what work is going to look like and kind of what work culture is going to look like in Silicon Valley on the other side of this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mean, to state the obvious, I think it's, it's going to, in some ways it's going to change a lot. And it's not going to change so much. I mean, I think in some ways we, we were blessed in Silicon Valley to already have a lot of work from home culture. Uh, either due to some organizations being highly distributed um, or to, you know, the, the simple reality of, of life and cost in Silicon Valley. So people have long commutes, so they work from home. Um, high cost of rent, so people you know, will work from home. So uh, I think in general, we've had it a lot easier than, than many other folks uh, in the transition to everybody working from home. So, um, and, and I think that's going to last for a while. I mean, I don't think we're all going to start going back to the office Right. I, I think we'll see how it works out. But, we, you know, certain people may go in or odd days or even days. You know, if you if you look at most Silicon Valley offices, particularly in the city, um, super high density. Right. Desks more than cubes. Cubes were kind of, you know, two decades ago, the popular thing. 
Now it's about desks, and, and desks do not lend themselves well to social distancing. Um, so I think uh, I think it's going to be an interesting return to work. I don't know exactly how we're going to approach it, um, but I think there will be a change. Uh, I, I think the, the bad news from my perspective is, you know, I, I was a big believer in Scrum and, and Agile methodologies and, you know, having everybody in one room and on a whiteboard um, and with Post-it notes and, you know, I know you can do that virtually. I've done it at Host Analytics. We, we, we ran Scrum uh, with a remote India-based development org. So you can do it remotely. But, for example, when I was at Salesforce, when we designed our facilities, I mean, our offices were designed with specific Scrum rooms. And um, I think it works better when everyone's together. And I think, unfortunately, that it's going to be a while before before that happens. You've seen many waves of innovation come and go. And we, we in Silicon Valley do a lot of call it navel gazing. We, we think that we've got a monopoly on innovation. Do you think that this period is going to change the uh, kind of kind of Silicon Valley as being an epicenter or the epicenter of innovation? Yeah, there's a lot to that question. Um, you know, I didn't really appreciate Silicon Valley until I left it. Um, so uh, between 1995 and 2000, I lived in Paris because Business Objects was actually a French company. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but it was uh, born and founded in France. And uh, my wife is French, and in, in 1995, a recruiter called me and said, "Hey, are you interested in relocating to Paris to go run marketing at a uh, at a basically a BI tools company?" And I flew over and did the interviews, and loved the people and loved the space. So, so I, I moved over to Paris in 1995, uh, quite some time ago. But um, but that was the first time I actually appreciated Silicon Valley when I was outside it, um, because everything was hard. Right? You want a PR firm who knows Silicon Valley PR can't find one. You want a design firm that can design tech, you know, corporate identity, can't find one. You, you want someone who's got, you know, five years experience in product marketing at a software company, can't find one. You want a lawyer who knows about software contracts, can't find one, right? Um, so, so all of a sudden, all this stuff that you take for granted uh, when you live at the center of an industry hub, none of it's there. Um, so it made it very hard to, to do things. I mean, and ultimately, in the case of business objects, we, we moved the company back to the U.S. Um, as we got bigger, somewhere around 1997, we started to move back. And, and by 2000, I was one of only two remaining executives on the East Staff still in Paris. So to, to me, business objects was really two things. It was a, you know, a venture-backed startup trying to win in BI. That part worked out really well. It was also an experiment to see if you could create Silicon Valley outside of France. Um, and, and that part didn't. Um, and, and the other thing I'd note about that experience, which was, this is really the, the killer, um, was everyone who was successful at that company left France because France is a, a very high tax system and they have a wealth tax. And, and literally anybody who was in early who did super well left. And Silicon Valley is the opposite of that. I think the biggest strength of Silicon Valley is after you go knock it out of the park at your company, you either become a venture capitalist and invest and sit on a dozen boards, or you become a consultant like me and sit on a bunch of boards and advise founders. And it's kind of the reinjection of talent into the system. Um, you know, investors, advisors, board members, that's what makes it so special here. Um, and I think that's very hard to replicate. So I, I don't think we have a monopoly on innovation per se, but on this model of kind of re-injecting experience, talent fueled by the two universities here, Cal and Stanford, boy, that, that's hard to beat. Well said. It's a unique perspective based on a, what you said, business objects in France. So there's a lot of hand-wringing right now in Silicon Valley, both on the venture capital side as well as on the startup side. We're kind of rethinking 
who needs venture capital? You know, who's a good candidate? And and how should on the startup side, how should fundraising strategies change? What's uh, what's your thought process? What, what's your coaching to uh, startups raising cash? Yeah, this one's tricky because, um, you know, look, if you can avoid venture capital, it, it, it's probably better <laughs> um, if you can avoid it. But uh, and the question is, then what circumstances? Because obviously you get diluted very heavily by VC. You can lose control of your company. Uh, you can be head faked into making bad decisions. Um, there's a lot of bad things that can happen with VC. And, and look, there's a lot of very, very, very good things that can happen as well. I would note, for whatever it's worth, that most of the companies I've worked at were not kind of VC-fueled rocket ships. We, we took VC, but Business Objects was formed on a total of $4 million in VC, for example. Uh, not very much money. Uh, Host Analytics, which I ran, raised a total of eighty-five, which I thought was a lot of money <laughs> at the time. But, but, but you know, now your mean public company is raising three hundred. Um, so I think... You know, first things have changed, right? Back in the day, you'd maybe raise 20 or 30 million. You'd go public raising 100 million and you'd go public maybe at 30 million in uh, revenue. Business objects went public in 1994 at 30 million in revenue. So, so things have changed a bunch. Um, and VC to me, the most important thing in VC is that you be aligned with your investors. And for example, I ran MarkLogic. MarkLogic was a Sequoia company and, and Sequoia wants big exits. Uh, and at some point in the history of that company, I thought we should sell it for a relatively kind of modest base hit or double. And, and there was very little appetite for that uh, around the table. Uh, and that's what I would call an alignment issue. Um, so I do think as a founder, you, you know, hey, if you want to swing for the fences, if you've got a big market that's just forming and there's a huge TAM and you can build a company worth billions of dollars, go raise VC, raise a ton of it and run as fast as you can to grab share, right? That's where I think VC really works best um, in, in kind of new and emerging markets where you have a chance to, and, and you need to go fast because if you don't go fast, there's five other startups who are going to go faster than you and you'll lose. Um, in some ways, I think good categories have become fun. Um, so if you're going to be in a good category and create a mainstream thing, raise VC. Um, if you're not, then maybe you don't. If you want to do like a niche business on the side, like a friend of mine founded Perforce, if you know them, uh, it was a and, uh, configuration management tool, uh, and he bootstrapped it. Uh, and he owned a phenomenal percentage of that company when he sold it in the end. So you... You know, I mean, the, the cost of VC is dilution. I think just to remember one statistic uh, at Box, I think Aaron uh, Levy owned less than 5% of the IPO, right? Because he raised a lot of capital. He was a, presumably a young guy without a track record. So he got a little more heavily diluted. So, I mean, you can get pretty diluted uh, if you go raise a ton of money, particularly if it's your first company. Um, so, you know, I think VC is a great thing. I think VCs provide a lot of valuable advice to companies, particularly if you work with good ones. Um, but I do, I think the fundamental question, and it, it's, it's impossible to put this genie back in the bottle, <laughs> um, is before you go raise it, make sure you and your VCs want to do the same thing and make sure you understand what you're signed up for. Because uh, if you're raising money from a top firm, they're going to want a huge exit and they're going to want to go for it. Um, and if you were hoping to sell the company, you know, owning half of it and sell it for $30 million, you know, that's not going to happen or sell it for 50 million. Uh, that, that, that's simply not going to happen. Great advice. Yeah. All about alignment. So in, in Silicon Valley, you and I both are, uh, uh, data obsessed and a lot of our, uh, a lot of our colleagues are, what, what's the one metric 
that every SaaS CEO should be tracking. Okay. Well, it's a good one to think. You get it down to one. I'm going to have to get warmed up. I think, well, first, obviously, ARR, but that's kind of basic. Uh, so, yeah, you, the, the value of your company is determined by your ARR and its ARR growth rate, right? So, to me, if I know those two metrics, I, I can just with those two metrics give you a, a, a pretty good estimate uh, on how much your company is worth. Um, so that's kind of the finance perspective. I think operationally, if you could only get one metric, it would be LTV to CAC. So lifetime value divided by customer acquisition cost. Um, and that's kind of a compound metric. There's a lot packed in there, but you only gave me one. So, so let me just walk through it real quick. So, uh, the numerator is lifetime value, which is effectively one over your churn rate, right? So you're saying, Hey, if you've got a churn rate of 10%, then your average customer lifetime is going to be 10 years. So uh, if it's a 100 ARR customer, 100 unit ARR customer uh, times 10 years, that's going to be a 1,000 units uh, of ARR. Um, so that would be your, your lifetime value of the customer. And then the customer acquisition cost is what you spend to acquire uh, a dollar of ARR. So, so just pretend that 100 unit customer, $200 to acquire. So you have a CAC of two, which is on the high side. Uh, in this particular scenario, you would end up with an LTV to CAC of five, right? So you'd have a, a thousand units on top and, uh, divided by 200 at the bottom. So you have an LTV to CAC to five, which is actually a pretty good one. Uh, by the way, the minimum on that metric is three. Five is considered good. And, and obviously, the higher, the better. And, and, and look, calculations aside, the reason I like LTV to CAC is because it's one of the few metrics that actually packs in, you know, th- this notion of what you pay for something should be a function of what it's worth. <laughs> you know, so if you have a really long lifetime value, and great expansion rate, you should be willing to spend more to acquire a customer than somebody who's got a really short lifetime value, right? Because because you're not getting as much bang for your buck. So that's the thing I love about that metric. Hope there are a lot of startup CEOs out there listening who are uh, taking copious notes. Good advice. So you've coached a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs, you've sat on a lot of boards. What's the one thing that... Uh, Every CEO of a SaaS company gets wrong. Metrics. I'm going to do this one metrics wise, right? Um, so, oh God, what's a good misunderstood metric? I mean, first, there's a couple of things people do wrong. Uh, this is more in general, but then we'll come back to the metric. Um, first, they present metrics without context. So to me, if you're going to present a metric and you're going to say 17, like I have no idea if 17 is good or bad, <laughs> right? I might have an industry benchmark if it's a common metric. But, but to me, I think that all CEOs should try to present metrics in what I call trailing nine-quarter format, which is for the last nine quarters, what was the value of that metric, right? So that way – and you need nine quarters because software companies are seasonal, right? So, so I need to have year-over-year comparison for two years, and then I can actually look at the progression of this metric and get some sense for context. So that, that's the first thing is presenting metrics without context um, it, more generally. And, and context takes a couple of forms. One is history. Right. That's one piece of context you can add. Uh, another piece of context is what was the plan? So you can you can do the math for me. Right. And, and, and give me as a percent of plan. I don't want to be trying to divide 10 by 17 in my head in the middle of your board meeting. Right. Um, you could give me uh, what's the other piece of context? Your target. If you have a target for this metric that it's not the plan, but you're like your three year financial model says we're shooting to get sales and marketing expense to 40 percent of sales. That would be good context to have in another column. Um, and the last piece of context would be industry benchmarks, right? Hey, what is the industry for companies in your size and your space? 
what is you know the average figure for this metric? So to me, there's lots of different ways to provide context to metrics, but the generic problem people make with metrics is uh, not providing enough context. Um, in terms of uh, misunderstood metrics, I don't know why. I don't really have one coming to mind. I mean, I guess churn is often misunderstood because people – they never know what to divide it by, right? I mean, calculating churn is easy. easy. Here's my joke. Calculating churn is easy other than figuring out the, the numerator or the denominator, right? <laughs> so for the numer you know, the numerator, uh, what should they put in? Should it be, in my mind, it should be the, the ARR, the churn. But some people like to use gross. Some people like to use net, right? And then in the denominator. Uh, or even worse, customer count. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you could put a customer count or you could just do um, I, I was actually thinking, do you do the entire ARR base? Or you do the ARR up for renewal. Right? And that's a sleight of hand people do. And and look, I think they're both interesting metrics, because if you're doing multi-year deals, not all of your ARR is up for renewal. But but uh, but boy, I sure like to know of the percent that was up for renewal, how much did you get? So I think, I mean, long story short, Dan, I think people play a lot of games with churn. So that's why I think it's misunderstood or maybe it's more gamed than misunderstood, which is why I think it's increasingly kind of getting replaced by net dollar expansion rate because um, that's much less gameable. Uh, I, I needed you to provide this advice when I was a first time CEO and I made all these mistakes a, a bit late, but better late than never. Great, great perspective. What uh so polish your crystal ball, Dave. What's one thing that we'll do in the workplace in say three to five years that uh, will be commonplace, but today might just seem outrageous? I I'm not so. Uh, my belief is business travel is going to come back, but it's going to be very different. And, and I just think we're going to have a different view on business travel. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, maybe this is not a three to five year question, but a one to two year question. But, but, but I think over the next one to two years, and I'll go to three to five in a minute, um, business travels would be interesting. Like, for example, I'm working with a company to say, should we try to have an annual user conference in 2021? Uh, or should we maybe make it a regional roadshow? Because while I think people are going to go back on planes by 2021, are they going to want to you know sit next to somebody with a mask on for six hours to go to a user conference? Maybe not. Maybe they'll fly from New York to Florida for one or New York, Chicago. Right, but maybe that annual user conference needs to be a regional roadshow. So that, that's probably my latest thinking on on kind of COVID-driven change. Um, that that as we reopen, I do believe business travel. You know, until there's a vaccine, until the thing's completely gone, business travel will be the same. We'll do it, but but I think there'll be a higher bar, and and, and we'll be more open to shorter flights. Um, you know, I, I think beyond that, something that would seem outrageous today. That'll be commonplace in three to five years. I don't know. I have trouble with that one. Um, I don't think I have a good answer for you, Dan. Next time when we have you back, you'll have thought about it and you can give a different answer. That's good, though. Good, good perspective. Maybe salary transparency. How about that? I'll, I'll make a bet. Salary transparency. There you go. So I know that uh, one of your passions is uh, is building cultures that endure. Uh, tell our listeners, what, uh, what culture or what team that you've built are you most proud? And what would you say that kind of the attributes of that culture? Sure. You know, the marketing team at Business Objects would be the answer to that question. And uh, I, I literally made a slide of the number of CMOs that came out of that marketing team. Um, and it filled four columns of a PowerPoint slide. I, I want to say literally we manufactured 
not just CMOs, but CXOs, the vast majority of which were CMOs, uh, 40. It's just an unbelievable number. There's like a 300-person team, and over the course of time, a huge percentage of them have gone on to great success, and and not just at any companies, at great companies. I think that team, because really, look, the, the ultimate measure of success for you as a manager, in my opinion, if you want to know how good your team was, go 10 years later and see what they did. <laughs> um, because, you know, look, you could have a, a, an average bunch of folks in a really hot market and great, great results. And that certainly happens all the time. And sometimes those people don't go on to do it again. Um, or in the case of that business objects marketing team, I had a huge number of people go on to become CMOs and, and not just from the product marketing side, but from the demand gen side, from field marketing. Uh, it was truly from communications. Um, it was really impressive. So, and I think what made that culture great, um, was it was what I, it was a bunch of very competitive people. I would call it a performance culture. Um, and, and you know, look, we, we had the benefit of having an arch rival or several arch rivals. You know, I think competition makes you better. So Cognos in particular was our arch rival, but MicroStrategy was a rival and a strong one for a while. And, uh, it was just very much a culture of winning. We need to go out and win. We need to beat the competition. We need to win the market. Um, and we need to have high standards. Um, and so we had very high standards in that department. Um, and, and I just think it's important because the, the culture itself, I mean, when I, when I went on to run Mark Logic, I, I called this the antibodies speech. But when you create a culture of performance, cause that was another great team and they went on to some great things as well. Like, you know, my number two guy at Mark Logic went on to run MongoDB, took a lot of people with them. That was an enormously successful company. Um, and some of the Mark Logic people have also done amazing things. Um, but in, in both cases, we had, we had a culture of high performance and high talent. And the beautiful thing about those cultures is they they become antibodies. If you bring in a weak person, the antibodies kind of surround them and, and, and kind of eat them. Um, and, uh, and that's a good thing because it, it actually means the managers don't have to do all the work of identifying uh, bad performers, that the team itself will say, hey, you know, you're not pulling your weight in this boat. And there's only six chairs. I mean, this is why I was thought Mark Logic was strong in this regard, because there was nothing easy about the XML database market. We had to be great. If we weren't great, you're dead. Um, there were 16 companies in that market when I started, and 15 of them went out of business. And, and we built an $80 million business that, that's probably today a $150 or $200 million business. So, um, and we did that effectively, you know, in a vacuum. Uh, and, and, and to do that, you had to be great. Uh, otherwise, we weren't going to survive. So I, I think the common, uh, the common uh, kind of the ties between those two stories is just culture of performance, culture of excellence, and, and, and that makes people rise to the occasion. And it also makes people say, you know, become intolerant of people who aren't pulling their weight because that's what will kill a culture, right? Oh, you've got 10% guys who aren't doing anything. Why should I cut my 10% guys who aren't doing anything? Uh, and for a while, I did see that at Business Objects. We beat that out, but, but, but that can develop. It's a phenomenal statistic. That should go on your epitaph, Dave. The number of CXOs that uh, that that your uh, your team's created, amazing. No, I, I probably should blog the slide because I made the slide for an elation kickoff to, to to let people know that you know that's really the way I think you should measure your career um, as a manager. And uh, yeah, the slide even blew me away because I'd never actually sat down and written it all down. And when I did, I was like, wow, it's beautiful. If you have a metric like that that you can share, then that's what that 
That is what you want to define your career. We're getting short on time here, but I got to get in a last question or two. Uh, for our listeners, what, what's your advice to uh, a younger version of Dave Kellogg? Yeah, uh, people who know me will appreciate this. Uh, uh, jokingly, put, put your hands in the air and, and step away from the keyboard. Uh, that would be the advice. Um, email has never been I'm, – I'm not good over email. I don't think anybody is, to be honest. Uh, I'm worse than most. And, and I just think I would try to do too many things over email. And, 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 you know, some people are naturally phone people. They want to pick up the phone and call. My natural instinct was to use email. And now today, people's natural instinct, maybe to use Slack. But, but, but I do believe I, I caused my career more problems with bad emails. Um, I have some epic stories one day we could share over a beer, but, but in just too many times, I should have just either not sent something or picked up the phone or just mailed it to myself. Um, and I think that would be the one thing that, that held me back and it helps a lot of people back. And then, you know, I think personally, I think email is a good communication meeting, uh, mechanism for logistics. Like, you know, see you at two o'clock for the podcast, right? But as soon as something gets complicated or difficult, um, I, I am not a big believer that the technology helps that much. Um, and, and that I think we're actually better off on the phone or on a zoom, um, than, than we are, you know, in comment wars or Slack wars or email wars or any other form of uh, typing-based warring. Well, Dave, that beer is going to taste great when we're finally allowed out of the house. So I'm going to, I'm going to take you up on that offer. One last, before before I can let you go, I got to ask, you and I are both uh, big big fans of live music. We've been uh, deprived of uh, a lot of shows over the past few months. What's the one live recording that uh, that you're taking with you into bunker mode and quarantine? Oh gosh, that one's tricky. Um, cause, cause I'm a Grateful Dead fan as, as I think you know. And, uh, they're doing some, uh, some good stuff online. They have, uh, what they call one more Saturday night. So every Saturday they brought, they stream a live show. So that, that's becoming a tradition. Um, and then Bob Weir, uh, does stuff on Wednesday nights, which I usually don't listen to cause I'm working. But, but on Saturday, I'll, I'll take the time in the backyard by the barbecue and, and I'll put on the Dead and Company live stream. Uh, and that's uh, there's usually around 6,000 people on it too, which is, I don't know, kind of amazing for a live stream on every Saturday. Uh, so that's what I've been doing. That may end up being the best advice of all that you've shared uh, on today's uh, episode. Dave, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I hope that uh, some of these trends that you're prognosticating come to fruition. Maybe you'll come back on the show and we'll, uh, we'll do version two. How's that sound? Yeah, it sounds awesome, Dan. I'd love to do it again. Great, great catching up with you again. And thanks to all of our listeners. Another great uh, discussion. Thanks to Dave Kellogg. We'll be back with another discussion next week.